open up to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and we're still, at least I'm still doing this little mini-series on, uh, you know, prayer, um, lessons in prayer uh, from the Old Testament, and so I don't know about you, but uh, I've been enjoying this. I found it not so much super instructive as far as like nitty-gritty um, explanation. I, I have found it just actually more inspirational, you know, and the prayers that are recorded in the Bible and seeing God move and answer prayers, I've been inspired by, by looking at these. So we're going to look at a story in Second Chronicles chapter 20, the prayer of Jehoshaphat. If uh, you're taking notes and you want to know the title of the sermon, it's called Winning the Fight Without Throwing a Punch, all right? Winning the Fight Without throwing a punch. And it's a great, great, great story uh, about Jehoshaphat's prayer. So just a little context for this story. So a couple weeks ago, I talked about Elijah, Jay. And remember the Mount Carmel and, and the prophets of Baal, and he called fire down from heaven and and then he got discouraged and depressed and ran away from Jezebel. We, we looked at Elijah one week. Then another week we looked at Elisha, his successor. And, um, you know, so we, we looked at his prayer for God would open his servant's eyes. And the servant first saw this army. Their Syrian army was surrounding them. And the servant was like flipping out like, oh my gosh, we're toast. And Elisha prays, no, no, there's actually more with us. Then are with them. God, Father, open my servant's eyes. And God opened his eyes and he saw the chariots filled with the, the chariots of fire and, and all this kind of stuff. So today we're going to look at another story and it's actually in the same time frame. And it's uh, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is the king, just a little context there. He's the king of Judah. Last time uh, Elijah was the king of um, the northern kingdom. Okay, he was the king of Jerusalem, the northern kingdom, and uh, Ahab, I'm sorry, did I say Ahab? Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom during Elisha's reign, and he was a really wicked, evil king, okay? Jehoshaphat was Ahab's contemporary, but he was the king over the southern kingdom, Judah. And so uh, the other two, Elijah and Elisha, they were prophets, and today we're going to read about a prayer of a king, Jehoshaphat. And so he, uh, he is actually a good king, not a perfect king, but a good king, and he had a heart to seek after God. And so, um, so that's just a little bit of the background. Is there anything else I wanted to mention about the background? No, I don't think so. So 2 Chronicles chapter twenty. We'll just read uh, the first 12 verses, and then maybe we'll read some later on. Jehoshaphat's prayer. <clears throat> After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazion Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. 
And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, before the new court, and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you and built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, quote, If disaster comes on us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We just sang that in the song. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Father, we just thank you for this story in the Bible and in Scripture. <clears throat> and Lord, we, uh, we acknowledge it's a story that actually took place in world history, and uh, but Lord, we want to look at this story, we want to think about it deeply, we want to we learn lessons from the story, not just so that we can answer a quiz on history, but Lord, so that we can know what you want to do in our age, Lord, so that we might know how to seek your face. When we come up against enemies in life that are bigger and stronger and more powerful than we are, Lord, we would know how to respond. So God, we thank you. We praise you. We ask you to bless our time as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Great, great inspirational story. I remember as a young Christian hearing a sermon out of 1 Chronicles chapter 20. You ever, you know, you, you guys have been, some of you have been Christians for years. You ever recall sermons that you heard as you were a baby Christian and 10, 15, 20, 30 or more years later, they're still like part of your DNA. You know what I mean? Can anyone relate? Like this story is one of those stories for me. God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I love that. I love that phrase. And I think that really, that really summarizes us in life. God, I don't know what to do. I am not sure what to do. But may the second part relate to us too. But God, our eyes are on you. Amen? So, first and foremost... 
Jehoshaphat, the king, had a problem. Okay, the Moabites, verse 1, and the Ammonites and some of the Munites came against Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom. And so basically Jehoshaphat is frightened for good reason. This arm, there's three kings working together. These three guys are working together, they're allies together, and they're coming against Jehoshaphat. Now notice the phrase in verse 1. It says, after this. As I was reading this, I'm like, okay, so what is after this? What happened before this? Well, if you look in your Bible, uh, before chapter 20 comes chapter 19. And in chapter 19, I don't know if your Bible has headings on it or not, but mine has a few headings. And the beginning of chapter 19 says, Jehoshaphat's reforms. So Jehoshaphat, up until this point, was a good and a godly king, and he was actually influencing his kingdom and the people of God in a really positive way. Look what it says in verse uh, 4. It says, Jehoshaphat, verse 14, uh, chapter 19, verse 4. Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem. He went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. So my point is this. Jehoshaphat's a good guy. And yet he finds himself in a situation that is bigger than he is. Okay? Now, do many of the problems in our lives do we bring them on ourselves? Yes, sometimes we bring them on ourselves. From our own stupidity, from our own ignorance. Ignorance is not bliss. Um, you know, tell the police officer that when you said, oh, I didn't know the, the speed limit went from 55 to 35. Well, sorry, young man. <laughs> ignorance is not bliss, all right? So, um, so whether it's just ignorance or sometimes rebellion, sometimes in life we get in trouble we bring it on ourselves. Jehoshaphat didn't bring it on himself. He was actually serving the Lord, yet he finds himself in a big, difficult situation and a big predicament. So, again, this is like a common theme in all of these stories that we've read about, by the way, is oftentimes we find ourselves in situations that are bigger than we are. We need wisdom. We need strength. We need a strategy. We didn't do anything wrong, but God, we need help. Again, this is what happens in this story. Um, so it was a problem not of his own doing. Okay. The second thing, let's look at the actual prayer. Okay. Let's look at the actual prayer. First and foremost, he acknowledges that he's in over his head. He says, verse 12, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. Now this is really important. What Jehoshaphat didn't do is what typically like leaders do do in our day and age. Meaning, in, in chapter 17, it talks all about Jehoshaphat's, the army that he had. It wasn't that he had no army. He actually had a pretty good army. Uh, look what it says in verse uh, 10, verse 10 of chapter 17. 
Notice this. It says, The fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Why? Because he had a pretty good army. Some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver for tribute. And the Arabians also brought him 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. And Jehoshaphat grew steadily greater and built in Judah fortresses and store cities. And he had large supplies in the cities of Judah. He had soldiers Mighty men of valor in Jerusalem. So I want you to understand, this is an important part of the story. So it wasn't that it, as if King Jehoshaphat had no resources. He had some resources. He had a pretty good army. He had some stuff like stored up for such a time as this when trouble would arise. But what is beautiful about Jehoshaphat, he doesn't do what we would typically think a king should do. The king should be like, all right, guys, let's go. Let's get all the commanders together. I need all my generals. Quick, ASAP, we need to have a, a, a team meeting, round table of all my generals, and basically come up with a strategy to, to try to defend themselves, and then at the end of it, pray, oh, God, would you bless our plan? <laughs> right? He does exactly the opposite. He hears about this invading army coming to wipe them out, and instead of relying on the arm of the flesh, instead of relying on his own resources, instead of trying to figure out all that he can do to make it all right, he immediately realizes, God, I need your help. I love that. I'm inspired by that. I, come on, I don't do that enough, and you don't either. We don't do that enough, all right? We don't do that. That's not normally our first go-to. God, I am totally powerless against this thing. We need your help. He does that. I, he shows himself. Now listen, a king is supposed to inspire, like inspire those that are that his subjects. Like the king is supposed to know what's going on and have a plan to fix the problem. Right? He, a king should never show his weakness. And what does he do? He does just the opposite. He calls a fast, and he says, we, need to we are in over our head, guys. We are toast. We need to seek the Lord with fasting and prayer. We need God's help. Amen? That's exactly what he does. He does the exact opposite of what a, you would think a, t a t king would typically do. So he prays, and he acknowledges their great need before this, this difficult situation. The other thing, look what he does in this prayer. Um, it says here in verse 3, it says, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout Judah. And he's seeking God's face, verse 3 and 4. So my point is he's seeking God's face not just simply God's hand. How many times do we just want the problem to go away? God, just please make this stop. This is bad. We don't want to get wiped out by this enemy army. We're in over our head. Just make the bad situation go away, please. And God is saying, 
Seek my face, not just my hand. Seek my face. Why do you and I as Christians whom God loves immensely, why do we still have problems? I don't know all the reasons. One great reason is because God wants us to seek his face. He wants us to lean into him relationally, right? He doesn't want to just take away our problems. He, he knows if, we, if he just takes care of all of our problems every time we have one, we're going to be like, you know, an, an inch deep and a mile wide. We're going to be so shallow in our relationship with God. But he wants us to seek his face. Seeking the face of God is a picture of like intimacy, of of relationship. And that's what Jehoshaphat understood. He called the people to seek his face. I love that phrase. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do. So please, don't. All of us have situations in life that are bigger than we are, more difficult. We don't know what to do. We're not, we, need, we need all kinds of resources. That's part of just being a human being, to be honest with you. But understand that God wants us in those times to seek him. Amen. Not just a solution. Not just to get out of this bad situation. Not to make the pain go away. But to really seek him. Amen? So he understands that. It's about seeking his face, not simply seeking his hand. He also understands, look at the prayer. He understands that um, he understands God's activities that he's done in the past. Notice, look at the content of the words that he prays. Verse 7. He says, Did you not, this is Jehoshaphat praying, did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land? Before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? So he's basically saying, now God, now you are the one who gave this land by promise to Abraham and to his descendants. And here we are many generations later. And so he's basically saying, God, you're the one who gave this land to to your people. You're the one who did that. Verse 9 He says, oh, and then he starts quoting. Uh, Verse 9 is kind of a a summary quote of when King Solomon, when they entered the promised land, they had been now established. And so it was in David's heart to build a big temple. And God said, no, I'm not going to have you build the temple. I'm going to have your son build the temple. So David you know, after years of conquest and, and, and defeating enemies, and he had all kinds of silver and gold and resources. So he didn't actually build the temple, but he gave his son Solomon all this stuff so that he could build a glorious temple. And then when Solomon built the temple, he prayed this prayer. And basically, he starts quoting aspects of the prayer that Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. And you can read about it in uh, just a few chapters earlier, 2 Chronicles chapter 6. But verse 9 is a quotation, kind of summary from that. If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before, before you, I'm sorry, before this house and before you, 
and for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. My point is this, is he is knowledgeable about things in the past when he's praying about the problem in the present. He's knowledgeable about God's promises, God's works, God's mighty wonders, Solomon's prayer, all in the past tense, and he brings that stuff to bear on his present situation. That's why, my friends, we need to be people of the book. <laughs> we, really, we need to be saturated with the stories of the Bible. Like, we need to, th- these stories, and the Bible is full of stories, okay? We need to be so saturated with what God has done in the past. And he's not a cookie-cutter God, by the way. He's more than free to do things differently in different situations, okay? And because he wants us to depend on him in the present tense. He doesn't want to just give us a formula and say, here, here's the manual, and just kind of put it on autopilot. He wants us to depend on him in the present tense in our difficult situations in life, but he wants us to do that saturated in knowledge of what he's done in the past, right? He really does. He, we need to be people that have know and are really familiar with what God has done in the past, and we know that because it's recorded in Scripture. He was totally, that was the, totally the content of his prayer. So, Lord, we're powerless. We're seeking your face, and we see what you've done in the past. Now let's read how God answers this prayer. This is awesome. Verse 13, meanwhile, well, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehazel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Mathaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. In all of these stories that we've read in the Old Testament, you know, the four or five weeks we've been doing this, two things to me stick out that are common. Number one is they all had a problem that was bigger than they could handle. (laughs) And number two, prayer wasn't just one-way communication. It wasn't like just writing my my, uh, Christmas wish list, sending it off to the North Pole to Santa Claus, okay? No, it was two, two-way communication. And again, this is what happens in this story. God, now understand, in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit didn't live inside of all of the people of God. The Holy Spirit would come upon certain people, the prophet, the priest, and the king, for their ministry. And for they, they needed um, 
the Spirit of God to do what they were called to do, but the common, everyday Old Testament saint, in a sense, didn't have the Holy Spirit like you and I enjoy today. That's one of the main differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You know, in the New Covenant, it says, uh, God says, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So every one of the pe- all of the people of God experience a, a filling and an inner change by the work of the Holy Spirit that they didn't necessarily experience in the Old Covenant. So, but in this, but my point is this, bigger point is that there was two-way communication. God speaks, and so God gives his perspective on the situation. So the first thing about God's answer is he, he gives prophetic perspective. God's Spirit tells them what, what is going to happen. That, hey, they don't have to flip out. They don't have to be afraid. Um, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Okay? And again, this is a big part of prayer. Second thing that happens is they're told to basically just, well, we'll read it. Verse 16. Um, tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jerul. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. So the strategy is kind of a non-strategy, okay? (laughs) They're literally told to go down to the valley and wait for the enemy to come up through this valley and they're literally told there to told to stand there and watch as God fights on their behalf. Now, I'm, you know, anytime I'm reading the Old Testament or any, any parts of the Bible, I'm, I'm always looking for, you know, where's, where's the gospel in this story? Where's the good news? And I'm like, this is such an amazing picture of the good news of Jesus Christ. They are to, now listen, it would have been now this strategy would have been much harder in some ways than to say go take your sword get all the guys with the bow and arrows and man just let them have it that that to me makes sense as far as a strategy when enemies are coming against me go after them with all you got and God's saying I'll help you defeat them and now there are times in scripture that God says go into battle and I'll help you in the battle this time he says, just stand there and watch. Can you imagine? That would be like insane. Okay, here they come. They're starting. You see them like come out of the trees and over the hill. And you're told to literally stand there. That would be unnerving, man. <laughs> it's like a strategy that's a non-strategy. But you know what it does beautifully? It really points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't save ourselves, my friend. Not even a little bit. <laughs> you know, we don't do, God doesn't do 50% and we do 50%. God do 80%, we'll do 20. We can do nothing to save ourselves. 
Zero. Zilch. Nada. I thought in this story, I was just thinking about the scripture where where Paul, uh, in Galatians chapter 3, I should have wrote it down. Either that or I should have had it memorized. Sorry. Um, Galatians 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So what did the Apostle Paul do for people to get saved? Is he portrayed Jesus Christ? So he he basically painted a portrait of Jesus Christ. That's how God intends to save people. Like when we realize, for me, when I was was a young man, before I was a Christian, I always thought being a Christian was about being a good person. Like I want to be a good person. I want to do good things and I want to stop doing the bad things. That's what being a Christian is. And so I was constantly focused on my behaviors, which never really measured up, and I was racked with a lot of guilt. And this is like in a season of my life when I'm trying to like get right with God. I'm trying to stop the old destructive habits, and I'm trying to do what makes him happy. And it wasn't until I realized it's not about what I can do. It's about what he did for me. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. The portrait of this man that lived a perfect life. I knew that. I knew Jesus was perfect. He lived a perfect life. And then he died, not for anything he did wrong, he died for me. And it's just simple faith. It was almost too good to be true. Like, I couldn't get my arms around the idea of I couldn't do anything for God to be happy with me. Like, for me to be accepted by God. It wasn't until, it literally took a long time for me to realize, oh, it's about what Jesus did for me, not what I do for him. That's the gospel. And so this, this command to stand, he's commanded to just basically stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord. What a kind of a picture of salvation. Crazy battle plan made no sense at all. Okay? So, notice what happens next in the story. Verse 18, Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a loud voice. The only response is to just bow and surrender and worship and receive the God that made this promise that he would deliver. And they, they did. They believed. Notice Jehoshaphat didn't say, ah, that doesn't sound like a good battle plan to me, God. You're going to have to show me a sign. No, he didn't do that. He totally responded with faith. <laughs> he believed. He trusted God. Amen? 
And so, um, it's amazing. And so then, well, let's just read on. It's such a great story. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tokia. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. So God supernaturally brings, uh, brings a victory against this army. Jehoshaphat doesn't actually have to fight. Nobody actually has to raise a sword. God the, causes their en- the enemies to fight against one another, and they completely wiped one another out as they were told just to stand and trust and believe. And uh, I, I like this in, in this part of the, the story, how for them to, like, to trust God and believe him, what was the one thing that they did do? It was what we do every Sunday morning. Quite a bit of it, actually. And that was sing. <laughs> and worship. And praise. Some people come to a church like ours. It's like, man, why do you guys sing so much? Actually, truth be told, a lot of, like, this story tells a lot about why we sing so much. Because, man, we just are thankful to who Jesus is and what he's done in our life. And everything that he's done on that cross is real to us. He wrought a victory on our behalf that we couldn't have wrought for ourselves. He's poured out his grace and his mercy and his kindness on us. And I still today still have problems and issues and struggles in my life. But you know what? You know, it says in Philippians, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. (laughs) I came to him as a beggar, needy, and I didn't bring anything to my salvation. Jesus did it all. And guess what? I'm still just as needy today. And my response is just praise and adoration and thanksgiving. And it sounds cliche. I know. I'm sorry it sounds cliche. But it's true nonetheless. I mean, the the Christian church is literally an army on our knees with our hands lifted high praising him. I know it sounds cliche. I know it does. I'm sorry it's so simple, but it's true. (laughs) It really is true. And this is such a great and inspiring story. So are you in uh, over your head at times? Is life bigger than you are? Your enemies stronger than you are? Don't worry, you're in good company. Truth be told, we're all in that situation. Okay? But if God be for us, who can be against us? 
Jesus defeats our enemies. He did it in the past when he died on that cross. And every day, every day, he wants to give us his strength. His mercies are new every morning. He wants to give us everything we need for every battle that we face, moment by moment, as we simply trust him, surrender to him, obey him. Notice Jehoshaphat didn't argue with him. He obeyed him. (laughs) He obeyed him. Amen? Amen. God is amazing.